Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. You mind running over to my house, uh, Brendan, see if you can fix my camera? You look much smarter than me. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, this is a very big day for me, Warren. Very big day for me. Uh, this is another episode, of course, of Inside Curling. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to all our sponsors. To our two World Curling Hall of Famers, Warren Hansen and Kevin Martin. So, Hansen, Kevin has made his way over to the Jungle GM Resort and Spa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, oh, my God. We're together, man. We might have, we might start something <laughs> rolling here. Uh, so, we're, we're off the same mic. Sorry about that, Jimmy. I forgot my laptop. Oh, I said, oh, my God. What, what do you mean you forgot your laptop? Yeah, it's in Palm Springs. Kevin is here. Uh, with me there. Watch Warren. Watch me work the camera. Watch this. Look at that. See that? I'm like a good camera guy. Sportsnet's going to hire me. Amazing. We got, <laughs> amazing. Uh, thanks a lot to our sponsors, Sports Interaction. They bring you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost, the sponsor of our email segment, Coyote Tractor, brings you hot rock topics. And Goldline uh, is the big sponsor of In the House. And we have a guest uh, today we'll tell you about shortly. Here's what's on the show. The fourth Pinty's Grand Slam event of the year has wrapped up. The Co-op Canadian Open was held this past weekend in Camrose. And uh, we're going to take a look at what happened there. It was a great event. I, I got in my car and drove down there, Warren, and uh, saw Kevin in action. Very impressive. You forget what goes into those events, Kev. The organization and the amount of volunteers and how they make the arena look. And if you get a chance, check out one of those Grand Slams if it comes to your town. It was really good. Uh, I thought it was great. It really was, you know, very well organized. Uh, the organizing committee did a fantastic job. I know they're very happy with uh, getting a sellout on yeah. the weekend. Uh, funny, you know, I, I said that on something, an interview or, or something about uh, being a sellout. And a lady got back to me right away and said, well, no, but there's some empty seats. Camrose has an awesome concourse around the building. It's actually a walking path for, uh, for whoever wants to walk around the building. Anyway, it's about 30 feet wide. They have lounges up there Jim and, and, and so there's so many people up top and they never ever sit in their seats like ever they just stand up top and two or three deep all the way around the concourse so very cool building uh, you know what I know that because uh I was sitting in a seat and I said no I got you got to get up higher right if you go to a live curling event you got to get up high so you can see the seats do you think anyone would let me squeeze in between the two of them on the rail they held it down like Fort Knox and I'm like come on I want to see they didn't know who you were also on the show, the provincial and territorial playdowns are underway, and there's uh, already been some teams uh, that have been determined for the Scotties and the Briar. We're going to find out about that. And the World University Games in Lake Placid, New York. Uh, we're going to check in on that. Hot Rock Topics. Last week, we talked to Dr. Heather Meyer from uh, Waterloo uh, University, and uh, her gig is looking at sports and leisure, uh, and she had a lot to say about uh, where curling is at and, and maybe what there's some of the issues with it. We had a number of people weigh in on this on Facebook. So we did some research to find out exactly how many curling clubs have been lost in Western Canada in the, in the last 15 plus years. And uh, you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. You know, Warren has often spoken about how we, you know, it's, it's declining. I think Warren, you're saying everyone thought, well, maybe it's, you know, take it easy now. It's pretty good. But we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, it will shock you some of the stuff that's been going on. We're going to talk about the 8-end game compared to the 10-end game. People have always said it's been too long. There was an article in the National Post about the CFL game being too long, but it's still shorter than curling. Hmm. Hmm. Back to the discussion of whether we should get rid of 10-end games completely. Mailbag. Wendy Ward has sent us an interesting email, asked a number of questions, uh, and we're going, to, we're going to give you some answers on that, Wendy. It was very good. Brendan Botcher, baby, is our guest. Once again, Kev, you, you lassoed a guy who's the most successful curler this week. <laughs> uh, and what a team he has, right? 
Ben Hebert, uh, Mark Kennedy, and Gallant, right? They're on that team. So what's happening around the curling world? It's brought to you by Sports Interaction. Do you want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction. Get in on the action and make a play at Sports Interaction, 19 plus and Ontario only. And please play responsibly. The fourth event of the Grand Slam of the year. The Co-op Canadian Open was held in Camrose. Brendan Botcher and his team came through. Fantastic event. A lot of great curling. Uh, on the women's side, Satsuki Fujisawa became the very first Asian team ever to win a Grand Slam. Kev, you were there. Uh, what do you think, man? Well, that was an absolutely massive win for uh, Japan curling. Um and really, you know what, with Italy and Retornaz winning the last slam on the men's side and now this time uh, Fujisawa winning on the women's, um, it's just becoming such a strong sport worldwide. Let's start with the women's, um, with the Co-op uh, Canadian Open. In the semis, four different countries. You had Gim, South Korea, Fujisawa, Japan, Vrano, Sweden, and of course, Anderson of Canada. Isn't like I just think that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, women's curling is 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 so even across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the men's side, you know, on the one semifinal, you had Gushu playing Adin. That's always an awesome game. Right. And now you had Botcher playing Retornas, and of course Retornas beat them last time. Right. And here you go this time. And uh, Brendan had to throw a draw to the forefoot, and it slid and slid and slid till it was basically a tie. They had to measure it, and they actually had to measure it twice right so incredibly tight and then having cameras be just a just a terrific crowd so knowledgeable it's funny in the uh, the women's final when fujisawa in the seventh end were she's trying to decide oh i'm sorry uh in the sixth end i believe it was anyway she was trying to decide what to do and the one shot she was thinking of was very risky it was a double raise trying to pick one out Mm -hmm. but if it went awry at all she would have jammed and give three well, the crowd, if you can imagine. <laughs> so uh, Fujisawa goes to the other end to throw the rock. And they're thinking, 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 because it's quite dangerous a shot. And the crowd, ooh, you know, like because they're they're all curlers in the in the crowd. Right. So they know what's going on. Fujisawa goes to the other end and changes her mind to a, a safe shot. And the crowd's clap <laughs> because she changed her call. Like, that, like it just doesn't get better than that. So wonderful event. Um, two great champions and Brendan Botcher who lit it up to say the least in that final. Mark him and, him and Mark Kennedy, the whole team played great, but those two guys, man, they make some terrific shots, the final six ends. And then, of course, Fujisawa. What a fun interview, Jim, uh, at, saw, at, yeah. at the end. <laughs> Such a fun interview. They couldn't quit j- jumping because <laughs> they're so like excited. Santa Claus showed up or something. <laughs> <laughs> they're so excited and, and really excited about what it'll do for uh, curling in their home country. So all of it very, very positive. Okay, I got to ask you, Kevin, before we get to Warren. Uh, I'm, I'm a Jennifer Jones fan. Did she, when she got eliminated, she missed her last two stones. I think she flashed and then overdraw or over, overdrew. Him. She could have won that game, right? She must have been pissed because it was on her. Was it on her, that, that loss? You're talking about the pick. Yeah. So um, center guard, that's the only rock in play. Jennifer peels it. There's nothing. They throw it in the house. She hits it and she wins. But her actually her first one picked. Oh, okay. It, it picked. So it had nothing to do with anything to do with other than just bad luck. And then, but then Rano makes a beautiful draw to right. almost the button. So then Jennifer had to draw the button and was just a hair deep. But the big thing was just unlu- unlucky, Jim. Okay. You know, it had darn thing picked. You're graceful when I make mistakes, Kevin. I like that. You're very nice to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Warren, what you watched it all weekend. Your thoughts. I thought the play was outstanding, uh, particularly that, that last game with Botcher, man, oh, man. I mean, Mark Kennedy, 97% for the week. That's simply amazing. So the play was outstanding. I made of note the uh, success of a couple of young teams uh, from the European side, particularly Ross White. I watched them play a game, and we talk about Mawad all the time, and, man, they're not far behind him. They're going to give him all he wants to handle for sure in the next few years. And then Isabella Rana out of uh, Sweden. And the same thing there, Hasselberg is going to have more in her hands than she wants with that team. And if we look into Switzerland, there's a number of junior teams there that are just on the cusp. So it's kind of interesting to note that uh, at that world level, there is a lot of young teams that aren't far out of the uh, out of the circuit today. And if we look again at this event, uh, Canadian teams, uh, while they did well in the end, there weren't a lot of them in the playoffs. There's only three men's and three women's teams out of the eight. So mm-hmm. again, 
Canada's got to, I think, start to wake up a bit, work harder, do some things differently to maintain its position at the world level going forward. I think we're not going to get to our picks. Kevin and I have decided we're not going to go over that, Warren. And why would that be, Jim? <laughs> okay. Oh, All right. Go ahead, Warren. You sure you want me to do this, Jim? Yeah, go ahead and do okay, it. Okay, we'll yeah. start with Jim. Make it quick, though, would you? Yeah. On the women's side, Jim picked Gim and Homan. Yeah, no cigar. And on the men's side, he picked Dunstan and Adine. Yeah, you got one there, Jim. Yeah, okay, thank you. One for four. Good, good, good on you. And then we go to Kevin. He picked Gim and Homan as well, uh, following Jim's lead. No cigar there as well. And Adin and Rotanas, and uh, he got one there as well. Okay. Now we'll go right. to Warren. Thank you very much for the update, Warren. Let's get on to the next subject, okay? <laughs> uh, I picked Fushisawa and Homan, and of course, uh, Fushisawa was the winner. And on the men's side, I picked uh, Edin and Butcher. And uh, that's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, Warren. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> He, he kicked our asses last year, too, in this thing, or last season, so. I think we better start placing bets. Well, yeah, we're going to get, yeah, we got to hook you up to sports interaction. I'm going to I'm gonna bet with you, okay? Uh, the provincial and territorial playdown started. A few teams have been selected, and they will be one of uh, 180 teams that'll be in the Briar and 240 teams that'll be in the Scotties. Uh, this, I kid, uh, it's 18 teams to the Briar and 18 teams to the Scotties. Uh, Warren, who's in so far? Well, let's just do a quick review of what took place this weekend. So starting in the Northwest Territories, they played their Scotties Championship. And uh, surprise, surprise, Carrie Galusha wins her 20th Scotties Heart with Joanne Rizzo playing with her from Ontario, who is a designated import. And of course, to remind everyone, Carrie is Kevin Cooey's sister. In Quebec, again, on the women's side, on the Scotties, another familiar team, as uh, winning the last three years, Laurie St. George's will win Quebec for the third consecutive year. And there's a little bit of an Ontario touch in that team. And the fact that Wayne Madaw's daughter is a, is a member of that team. And on the men's side in Quebec, uh, Felix Asselin uh, wins the win side. And Felix has been an up-and-comer there for a while. He's been at the Briar the past couple of times, but with Mike Fournier. And he's now skipping that team. So they should do fairly well. And... Uh, with St. George's playing third, Aslan won the Canadian Mixed Championship, you may remember, back last fall. So those are the Quebec representatives. And in BC, Clancy Grandy from Victoria defeated Corin Brown of Kamloops in the final to represent that province at the Scotties in Kamloops at the end of February. Grandy has been a solid Tier 2 team this past few years. She actually won the Grand Slam two-tier event in Grand Prairie last fall and would have been playing at the Slam and Camera as if the Provincials weren't happening at the same time. So they, again, uh, she's not a young player. She's been around a while, but uh, certainly is beginning to gather some steam. And on the men's side, the defending champion was the veteran Brent Pierce of Vancouver, but he was defeated by quite a young team, Jacques Gaucher, from Victoria in the final. And I think three members of that team are 24 and one is 22. So they are just starting out on their trek down the briar path. That's it. So we got uh, first-timers then coming into the Scotties in the Briar. Out of BC, yes. Yeah, good for them. Both teams. How many times, Kev, did you uh, qualify for the Briar? How many times provincial winner? Hmm, good one. I don't know. 12 or 13. I don't, I'm not positive about that. 12 or 13. Isn't it interesting how things have changed? You know, it took, uh, the Briar started in 1927, and it took Garnet Campbell until... I think it was 1968 when he won his 10th Purple Heart. And uh, that was thought to be an amazing achievement. And uh, now it's almost ho-hum. If you don't have 10, you're nobody. (laughs) (laughs) How old were you, Kev, on your first one? Uh, First one was 1991. So I would have been uh, 25. Good on you, brother. Good on you. 24, Jim. 24, have my 25 birthday. was good enough. My okay, birthday, My birthday hadn't happened yet, so yeah, 24. Unreal. Congrats, man. I'm, go- uh, I'm Googling myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor guy. Uh, he can't remember how many Purple Hearts he has. Uh, yeah. <laughs> imagine a, <laughs> Jim is 12. Imagine a, guy, imagine a guy who's, you know, the best curler in the country going, how many times did you make the, the national championship? I don't know. <laughs> I was but he didn't. He had to Google himself. Uh, okay. Good luck to everyone. 
we're, we're going to be bombarded, I guess, by playdowns now from here to the, to the Scotties and the Briar. The World University Games, I forget about these. Uh, happens every couple of years. It's uh, taking place in Lake Placid, New York. Canada has a team, Abby Marks from the University of Alberta and Owen Purcell from uh, Dalhousie uh, in Halifax. Uh, Warren, you got an update for us. We'll just look at this quickly. Again, this happens every two years, as Jim mentioned. So on the women's side, leading the way is two team, two countries, China and Britain. They're both at 5-0. and oh. Korea is at 4-1 and one, along with the USA. And the Canadian women, Abby Marks, is struggling a bit. They're at 2-3 and three, along with Switzerland and Sweden. So that's the front runners. On the men's side, Britain and Canada are at the top of the heap. Uh, Britain's at 4-0, and oh, Canada, USA at 3-1. and one. Korea 2-2, two and two, along with Norway, Switzerland, and Sweden. So Canada doing not too badly at the men's side, struggling a bit on the women's. That will continue on through the rest of this week, and they will go into playoffs this weekend. The top four teams on each side will enter into a sudden-death playoff. Uh, four plays one, two plays three. The two winners play, and the winner will be declared the university champion. There we go. I break out in hives when you say the word university. I... <laughs> I went for four years, okay? You're supposed to get seven credits a year. That'd be 28. I went for four years, every single day, Warren, full-time. I got two credits. <laughs> but I had a great time. Very good. Uh, good luck to Canada the rest, the rest of the way. Hot Rock Topics is brought to you by Coyote Tractor. If you have work to do, Coyote has the tractors, the UTVs, and ZTRs to do it. We dig dirt. In the intro, we mentioned... The last week we had Dr. Heather Mayer on, uh, and she's involved in sports and leisure activities out of uh, Waterloo, and we had a lot of response from it. Uh, we talked about some of the issues with curling clubs and facilities in Canada. Some of the people on Facebook did not quite agree with the suggestion of there being a problem in Canada. I know a guy who does think there's a problem with it, and uh, we've got him on the show of course, Warren, you did a little research to find out exactly how much curling ice has been lost in the recent years. What did you find out, Warren? I found out some uh, some facts that are pretty disturbing, and we always talk about this numbers of sheets of ice kind of roughly uh, from here and there. I wanted to go through in some detail. So I've actually tracked down exactly what's happened in Western Canada, probably in about the last 15 years. And I'll start in the West Coast with Vancouver and move to Manitoba. So in BC, this is what I'm aware of. The North Shore Winter Club has gone in Vancouver, 10 sheets of ice, the North Shore Rec Center, 8, Hollyburn Winter Club, 6, Arbutus Club, 6, Burnaby Winter Club, 6, McPherson Winter Club, 8, and the Coquitlam Winter Club, 6. That's 50 sheets of ice. We know at the moment as well that both Nelson and Duncan, BC, are clubs that are in trouble. There may be some other ones at the rural level, but I'm not aware of them. In Alberta. We first go to Calgary, the Big Four building, 48 sheets. The Foothills Curling Club, eight sheets. The Western Curling Club, eight. There's 64. We go to Edmonton, the Sportex building, 24. The Royal Glenora, 10. There's another 34 sheets. Now do we go to Regina? The heartland of curling has always been thought to be Regina. The Curlodrome, gone, 12 sheets. The Tartan, 10. The Wheat City Curling Club, five. Wiscana Winter Club, six. There's 33 sheets of ice. There's only two clubs left in Regina, the Caledonia and the Highland. In Saskatoon, Hub City, eight sheets gone. Prairie Exhibition, six sheets. The Granite, nine for a total of 23. Three clubs left in Saskatoon, Sutherland, Nutana, and CNR. Here's the big one, Winnipeg. 14 clubs have closed their doors, accounting for about 100 sheets of ice. The Grain Exchange, the Transcona, the West Caledonian, the Rossmere, the Winter Club, the Wildwood, Highlander, Weston, Fort Osborne, Old Thistle, Victoria, Civic Cal, Maple Leaf, and Strathcona. In total, that is about 304 sheets of ice and 35 facilities. There's also been many losses in Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes, which I did not go far enough to investigate the details there. I do know, though, cities like Moncton that once had three clubs now have one. And historic clubs like the Charlottetown Curling Club, also gone. So it's not a pretty picture. And uh, I guess somebody better wake up because there's a whole pile of clubs. Probably in the next few years, because of their age, are going to require new ice plants, new refrigeration equipment, and other things because of aging. And I think a lot of them simply don't have the money to fix it. And uh, these municipalities and governments 
have to be brought into helping out and making these facilities survive. Kevin, your thoughts? Well, I think you're you're right. Curling needs to be sort of run like hockey or the swimming pool because it's just a really important right. thing in these towns. The, the curling club is so important for for people to get out, get their exercise because curling you can play from the time you're. I started when I was seven, and um, the oldest guy I ever remember curling, Ed Lang, and he threw out of the hack. He didn't throw with a stick. He was ninety five. So hopefully we get the municipalities, provincial governments, um, and of course our, our national government to understand that how important curling is to the, the fabric of, of our culture and uh, um, of these cities and towns across Canada. This may sound like a dumb question, but it's not. Although there's hundreds of sheets of ice that have been lost, is it because there's, there were too many sheets and that the number of curlers might still be the same, but they go to different clubs? Like the overall number of curlers, is is it way down or, or not? You know? That's a good question, but I would have to say overall, from numbers that were being claimed back in the 80s, it's down considerably. And I guess the population of our country has been increasing dramatically over the last 30, 40 years. To say that we can't maintain the same curling facilities that we had, and most of these facilities go back into the 60s and 50s even, something's wrong somewhere. And the fact that we were able to have all these facilities and fill them with curlers. And now we slowly but surely, I know in many cases, these buildings have been lost for different reasons. Some of them much along the same lines as the Saskatoon Granite simply can't continue because they need repairs to equipment and they haven't got the money to do it. But this comes back to the factor of these provincial associations have to come together and they have to probably among other things, teach some of these clubs how to budget and how to charge fees that are, that are reasonable that they start to build Reserve funds. I mean, some of them have reserve mm-hmm. funds, but a lot of them are strictly hand to mouth, and they end up having any kind of a problem that's going to cost any kind of money. They simply don't have the the funds to uh, to fix it. And again, these municipal governments, I believe, have as much responsibility for these curling facilities as they do for the skating rink or the ball diamond or the soccer field, mm-hmm. because in all cases they are recreation facilities for the public. They aren't. The curling club is not a private facility. Granted, there are clubs, if they're part of a golf course, maybe they are private. But for the most part, they aren't. And uh, something needs to change. Yeah, it's, and it's tough to get people to step up, right? Like, like Warren talks about, you need people to, to lobby governments and try and increase membership and get to people. Well, you do it. But it's, again, I believe the provincial associations are the one, the curling clubs are their responsibility versus running 15 playoffs for Canadian championships that hardly anybody goes into. I was looking at one province here a couple of days ago. They're running over 15 provincials, whether it's U18, seniors, masters, you name it. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, there's not many people going in those things anymore. And that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be getting bodies into the clubs and filling the ice, utilizing the ice. And uh, I don't believe that's where the focus is. We talked about the 8N game to the 10N game. Uh, So we're going to talk about it again. Uh, The co-op. In Camrose is eight ends, and, and uh, I was there to watch a few games, and I've, I've got to admit, uh, when you get in the habit of watching these eight-end games, you come away going, man, am I ever glad it's not 10. The National Post ran an article this past week indicating the CFL, Canadian Football League, thinks its games are too long. The stats suggest the CFL game is shorter than a 10-end game. Uh, this is kind of interesting, Warren. Tell us all about the article. We want to get both your reactions on this. Yeah, it is interesting because apparently the CFL back uh, as recent as 2014, their average game length was two hours and 55 minutes. It's now down to two hours and 46 minutes. And in a recent survey they did to their fans, they found out that uh, for the most part, people say that's too long. And I find that interesting because a 10 in curling game is three hours at least. And, uh, it comes back again as to, we've talked about this before, but there's no question. I mean, a curling game that's being televised is about 15 minutes per end. That's three hours for a 10-end game. That's two and a half hours for an 8-end game, which is pretty much what happened this past weekend. If we look at other sports, when the, in this article it was also outlined, and in the NHL, they're between 220 and 230. The NBA is 230, and soccer is about two hours. So of these major league sports with a 10 in curling game were longer than any of them. The only game I know that goes longer that gets away with it because uh, of who they are, <laughs> and that's the NFL. 
And uh, they do have longer games. They're a little over three hours, but nobody else is in that category. And as mentioned in this article, the CFL, they're looking at, they know they've got to bring it down even more. So again, Kevin, <laughs> it's still I, I still don't hear much being said anymore about the the world bringing things down to eight ends. What do you think? You hear the uh, the papers rustling here in the background. That's me. I keep every game that I, I broadcast, every every uh, draw. Yeah. yeah, for every, every, ever since I started uh, eight and a half years ago. And so if I just go back to say the quarters, semis, and finals this week. There's lots of scoring. So like, you know, you hear people say, well, an eight-end game's not long enough because if you get behind, you can't catch up and all this stuff. The scoring is huge. Um, other than Botcher goes on some uh, blank fests mm-hmm. <laughs> once in a while. Right. But other than other than Botcher's games, you've got uh, the men's quarters were eight to two, six to two, six to two. That's a lot of scoring. And even the Botcher game was five, nothing. They, uh, they shut out Schwaller. On the women's side, seven, two, uh, seven, six, and what's that? Eight six. Mm-hmm. So high scoring. Like if you just go page by page, right. seven six. Like it's all high scoring. So I don't think eight ends is is a problem that way. And that's kind of the only argument is that if you get behind, you don't have time to come back. The thing about ten end games that at least when I used to play them, we knew we could burn up a couple ends. We could blank the first couple, get the ice keened up, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we did. So to me, I just don't understand why the game hasn't been completely eight ends. It's it's fun to watch. You're done in, even on television, just over two hours. Two hours, 15, you know, definitely in two and a half, it's over. Right. But less than that. So to be able to package a game, and in, in the club, you're, you're, you're less than two hours. You're, you're in and done. So pretty good. Eight, end make, eight, eight ends makes sense to me. Like no one seems to be kicking up a stink about the game being eight ends. Because uh, I was going to ask, what, what's the argument for 10? And you said, well, t- teams want to come back. But that's the equivalent of saying, okay, we need four periods in hockey. You know, it's not fair. For, for a team to come back, right? Why don't they Why don't they just freaking change it? Yeah, that's something. Yeah, just... Well, they've been dancing on this now for about six, seven years. I kind of know in the background, I won't get into it, as to what's going on here, which is pretty crazy in my opinion. But they've got to step forward and do something. They just it, It's crazy to keep punting it, punting it, punting it, and uh, step up, make the change, and move forward as far as I'm concerned. Well, what are they going to lose by doing it? Yeah, no, it makes sense to go to, I think, uh, a 10 ends, it just takes a long time, but I don't think the game is different. You know, you, if you play a 10 end game or an 8 end game, if you're playing against somebody good, in an 8 end game, generally you throw a center guard. I'd love to do an event where I might have to try to do this and figure out, you know, in an 8 end game event, like mm-hmm. like the co-op Canadian Open last week, how many times is a center guard thrown in the first end, which means aggressive play. Right. Whereas a 10 end game, how many times? I'll bet you most of the time the Rock is throwing the forefoot in the first end in a 10-end game, but a guard in an 8-end game because you can't really afford to burn up the first right. couple ends because you need to get after it. Well, that's what the crowd wants is totally. offense, yeah. like scoring. So, you know, it just makes so much sense to me. And, and well, let's do a little research on this, Warren. We'll have some fun with it. Yeah, I mean, I was watching on Sunday two games at one time. I was watching the Slam event. I was watching the... BC finals, which were 10 ends and the slams were eight ends. I mean, Saturday and Sunday, both days I was doing that. And it was just so different uh, to watch that event that was eight versus the the 10. It was just, uh, you're going, oh, is this, oh, no, no, there's two more ends to go. And it, it just. Warren had the lizard thing going again. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old lizard eyes. Yeah. Provincial's going, he probably saw everything. Uh, good stuff. Lots of meat, man, on the bone today on this show. That was Hot Rock Topics. Let's get to Mailbag, brought to you by Nestle Boost. Complete nutrition to fuel your day. Uh, We got an email from Wendy Ward, who asked us a number of questions. We'll keep it down to a couple. Uh, She'd love to hear a discussion on some of the oddest rules in curling. Have have we not covered every rule in curling? Okay. (laughs) Any of these need to be updated, so we'll get you to comment on that. Both. Also, here's one for you, Kev. How are featured games decided on broadcast schedules? I know we all like to watch the upper crust of the teams, but if I have to once again watch a certain team that is constantly being pushed in my face, there's a almost 100% chance I'm turning it off. Take it easy, Wendy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one, one might think focusing on a, on a few of the uh, up and coming might not hurt the game. What do you guys think about that? Thanks for keeping me entertained over the years. And that's from Wendy. So let's go to you first, Warren about odd rules 
you know, back in 1871, Warren, when you were around, when curling started, <laughs> there's been some rules. I think there's a couple. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can talk about rules. I remember the opinion with a sport like curling, keep it as simple as possible. But there's a couple in there. There's one that uh, deals with a ruck turning over during the course of delivery. Another one, if a ruck gets broken in the course of a game as to how you deal with it. And I think that those might have been applicable back in the days when you were tea-kettling the ruck down the ponds <laughs> and, and hitting rocks that were less than, than granite. Uh, but I don't think they're probably applicable today. The the one that always I've talked about it before and uh, – I, I chuckled to some degree as, as to a rule that was probably brought in when they were playing on the ponds, and that is the fact that your opponent can sweep your ruck behind the tee line. If you look at the sport of curling, there is no point in the game that you can do anything at all that might impact your opponent's ability to complete or, and make a shot, except in this one instance, once the friggin' ruck hits the tee line, it's a free-for-all. And uh, back in my time, and things changed a little bit in the rule as far as who has the right to get next to the stone, but it was almost body checking going on on that tee line a lot of times. You got a guy like Gervais that weighed 280 pounds. He'd stand on the tee line until the absolute last second, so the other guy couldn't couldn't do anything until the rock was probably practically stopped anyway. So it's always been kind of a, a funny role that you can sweep your opponent's rock once it reaches the tee line. I think it probably goes back to the days I was thinking through it when there was snow and debris on the, on the lake or on the river, and... Uh, if there was debris behind the tee line, your your opponent could maybe throw his rock a little heavy, knowing that there's going to be something there to catch it, and probably allowing you to be able to make sure that uh, it wasn't able to happen was maybe why that rule was put there. But I never did understand the purpose of it, and I think it's probably something that could be eliminated and make things a lot cleaner, even even flowing. Anyway, those are my thoughts on rules that uh, could have some adjustment to them. Kevin. Well, the one behind the T line, I sure agree with. It's a. It, I saw it a few times this week in cameras where uh, rocks hit each other, and of course, one person wants to sweep one person, the other person wants to sweep the other one, and they're on the wrong sides. Well, now they're trying to do the dance <laughs> to get around each other and and not, not kick the rocks, of course, right. like not miss each other. But you know, one thing that we could involve um, with rules that's not a rule yet, actually, to go a little bit a different direction. Um, one thing that it seems to happens some in in all levels of play that's club level and even championship level are people throwing a shot and staying down watching the line too long with be it on their elbows or be it on their hands or their knees and then melting the ice and of course uh, the way a rock runs is on the little pebbles Mm -hmm. well as soon as you put your hand down the pebbles all melt and it's just a flat and that can cause trouble with how the rocks run later in the game. So that's something that we could actually look at, making sure the the, the curlers at all levels, from beginner right to uh, right to championship curling, that they don't uh, don't lay there, sit there, kneel there right. too long, and uh, and hurt the ice surface because that's that's really important. Kind of like with uh, with the green, you right. want to make sure you don't drag your feet or right. or hit your putter into the turf or right. you know whatever. So that's really important. I always, I always thought the, and it happens a lot. I always thought the a rock picking was like, are you kidding me? I don't get that over, you know, because it picked up some piece of crap off your <laughs> shoes or whatever. But like a putt hitting a piece of dirt, you can't take it over. Uh, how do they pick the games, featured games, and and what the broadcast schedule is? Well, simple answer. My boss, uh, <laughs> Curtis Savile, right. uh, he's the he's the uh, producer of of the curling, and he he chooses. Um, you know, obviously there is a mix of uh, try to get the new names in mm-hmm. some, but when you have Rachel Holman play Jennifer Jones, that's a, it draws a big crowd. Mm-hmm. It, it draws big numbers on TV. And there's just you know, big names that people really love to watch. Bruce Mao, it's become very popular mm-hmm. in the world of curling. Um, Brad Guju's a, a monster. Like he's, he's really popular right. all over the world. So there's certain teams that draw big numbers. And of course, um, be it Sportsnet or any, any station, you're going to yeah. pick, you're going to pick those, those, those games more often. Now it is important though, I think, and uh, um, to, to have the up and comers on television because they're the up and comers. Right. They're going to be the the Brad Gujus, the Kevin Cooies, the Bruce Mowitz, the Brendan Botchers of the future. So we need to you know, need to make sure they're on occasionally. But you know, obviously the the big names in tennis, I, I definitely would 
want to tune into the big names yeah. more than more than up and comers. Gary Bettman, I was sitting with him one time at a game, and I said, "Who do you cheer for?" Gary, the commissioner of the league, and uh, every year, and he said, "Hands down, either the New York Islanders or the Rangers." Wow, I wouldn't know that. You know, he said absolutely. We get we get twenty million people who are watching that game just out of the state of New York. And there's a reason the Leafs are on TV all the time, you know, because there's millions of people watching it. So, although I get what she's saying, but. Well, I think, I think the big thing with this too, we're, we're heading into the video streaming world. And as this whole change takes place, however long it takes place to happen, I would think within the next, I will say five to 10 years period of time, we're going to end up in a situation where every sheet of ice will be out there on a stream, just like it was at the Olympics last year in uh, Beijing when CBC was running a signal from every sheet of ice. So that will be coming eventually, but we're not there yet. Good stuff. Thanks, Wendy. Listen to the Inside Curling podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, it's time. In the house. Brought to you by Goldline. Goldline Curling Equipment can be found at pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, their retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they got a couple of stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of Curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. So as we continue through the show, as I'm operating as camera guy, see that right there? Don't move the camera, Jim, okay, says Warren. Uh, we are very pleased to be joined by the latest Grand Slam curling champion uh, from this week in cameras at the co-op. Uh, Brendan Botcher joins us. Congratulations, Brendan. Way to go, man. You must be happy. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, yeah, that was an awesome week for, for the whole team. It was, it was just great to come out on top. Uh, talk about the whole new team that you have this year. Uh, boy, on paper, and this week will be an indication of it. When, when you guys put that team together, people said, look out, world. These guys are going to be an f- absolute force. And, and, of course, this weekend would indicate that. But it took a little bit, probably, uh, Brendan, to get rolling. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think, you know, on paper, we got four great guys. We got a great coach. But, you know, the proof's in the pudding a little bit. And sometimes that takes a little bit of time to you know, all come together and and actually try and move the yardsticks a little bit as a team, as opposed to just going out there and trying to make as many shots as you can individually. And I've really felt like here in the last couple events, we've moved that needle a little bit. And certainly here this past week, you know, just all the way through the lineup, outstanding. Going into this event, Brendan, was was there a different strategy for you guys? Did you obviously, you know, to curl and perform at a peak level, you, you need patience. Everyone knows that. Uh, talk about going into this week and and did you look at it differently than weeks past? Well, you know, the fall schedule is pretty compacted, you know, really from mid-September till early December. We're playing a whole pile and, you know, you're fitting in as much practice as you can, but, but it's tough. Um, and I think, you know, one difference before this last event was we had almost a month off after the last slam. And, and I think we used that month really smartly. I think we practiced a lot and and like I say, I think we moved the yardsticks a fair bit um, as a team, and, and that ultimately showed showed when we got back on the ice there in Camrose. Okay, what's it really like dealing with Ben Hebert? <laughs> well, Ben's a lot easier to curl with than uh, than Kevin made it seem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is he outspoken on the, on the team in the in the locker room behind the scenes? You know, I actually can't say enough good things about Benny. He'd do anything for you. Um, he's a team guy through and through, um, and he's just been great to play with. So, no, my experience with all of them has been great. They're they're all, you know, outstanding individuals in their own right, and I think we're coming together as a real good group here. Well, you mentioned Kevin. So, Brennan, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, well, Benny, of course, is uh, is fantastic. One of the only guys that, that I know would eat glass, definitely eat glass to win. There's nobody more competitive than Ben Hebert, but Mark Kennedy, he's got to be up there too. Like I've never played with Brett Glant, so I don't, I don't know Brett as well, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on Mark and Brett. 
Yeah, you know, I think we're all equally competitive, but, you know, we all have a little bit different personalities. And, and I've come to learn, you know, over the years that I've been doing it, that that you do need that guy on your team that brings that shot of energy and keeps everyone accountable and, you know, forces you to have the conversations that maybe aren't always the easiest. And, and I think Ben just does an exceptional job of that with us. Um, it's really easy to be out there with four guys that are, you know, the same person, but doesn't always lead to the most success either. You kind of need to come at it from from all the different corners. Yeah, you know what? During the uh, during the broadcast, um, something we talked about in the booth, Brad, the whole team actually a lot talking about the line of delivery, making or at least I, I think that's what you're talking about, um, making sure you get the stone on the line. Or I, th- I think early, but could you please tell me, because we were, we were sort of speculating what you were talking about, um, probably through the, more of a Mark Kennedy looking way at, at the game, but please let me know what, what were you talking about when you're, get it on the line, I think is exactly what Brett would say. Well, you know, I, I, I mentioned we spent a lot of time practicing and, and I really think we were trying to move the needle a little bit in developing, you know, how are we trying to throw a curling stone? You know, you look at all the top teams in the world and we all have a slightly different method, but I think one thing you could agree with is the teams that are truly successful, all four of them out there throw it similarly, or at least their rocks come down the sheet on a similar arc. And I think that's one place where we've really spent a lot of effort here in the last month is what is our way going to be? Then when we're out there on the ice, you know, how can we be talking to each other in a way that, you know, just reminds each of us, what is it we're trying to do? keep it on the line or get it on the line or yeah, you probably heard us say that quite a bit and that was just a reference back to all the practice we had put in um when we're, when we're talking to bruce mowat or, or bobby lammy it's funny you know the top teams you guys are are thinking a lot in the same way um how they really worked on the amount of rotation so that with powerful sweeping which both of your teams have being able to get the rocks to to move whichever way you want at a known time at a spot where you know it can move. Um, so I guess you, you say, well, how are we throw a rock? Well, how do you throw a rock then, Brennan? Like, uh, might as well get in the weeds a little bit here with the technical side, and then we'll give uh, a Warren a chance to step in. Well, you know, without, you know, giving away any trade secrets, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of time out there with Paul. We're spending a lot of time on the laser, you know, so right from in the hack till, you know, when we're letting the rock go, watching the rock travel down the sheet on a laser line, how do we want our rock relative to that laser line through the the pullback, through the delivery, through the release, through that first 20 feet out of your hand? When do we want to see the break point? Um, and I think for all teams, you know, if you can sit down and have that conversation, what is it that we're trying to do? Um, that That's really helpful. I mean, the top teams now are just too good. And you can't play 90% through the lineup with every rock being a snowflake and a a little bit new adventure, right? So uh, how can we get our rocks traveling the same, make, you know, putting the broom down a bit easier for me, line calling a bit easier for the team, sweeping and judging a bit easier for the guys. And if all that together works out to, you know, a couple extra shots a game, that's the difference these days. Yeah. um, I'll let Warren in here in a sec. Um, Mike Harris and I were talking uh, during the final, and, and it's, it's startling with the top, let's say four or five teams in the world now, you, you guys just hardly miss. Like you, you can't afford more than maybe a half shot and end, a full shot and you're in trouble. Do you have a goal as far as, or you do even look at it that way, Brennan? Like how do you look at an end to end basis? What's good, what's not? Or, or, or how do you look at that picture? No, I think you have to. So absolutely you've got to make seven shots an end otherwise you're you're on damage control mode <laughs> you're, you're certainly not dictating play if you're missing more than that and you know the first you know handful of events we played as a group that was something Paul our coach tracked uh, every end we played he wrote down how many shots out of eight were makes or you know within tolerance of makes and frankly we had a few too many ends where we didn't hit the threshold so you know part of that's throwing it a little bit better part of that's communicating and judging and getting the most out of the throws. Um, And part of that is calling makeable shots because regardless what strategy you play, the best shot is, is going to be the one you, you made as opposed to the one that you might miss. So I think all that's kind of factored into how we throw a rock, how we call a game. um, And ultimately, you know, how are we going to play 90 plus percent? Because if you don't, you're probably not going to be on the winning side of the equation. 
Yeah, well, congratulations again, Brennan. Great weekend. You guys played absolutely superb. I was noting Mark Kennedy. I think going to that final game was averaging 97%, which is absolutely outstanding. But a couple of things. I first want to talk about the Canadian structure overall. And uh, we'll look at this slam. And I think the first time ever in the final teams in the men's and women's, only three out of eight were Canadian teams. In the last slam, on the women's side, it was three out of eight. But in the men's, it was five. And I look at some of the young teams coming up in these other countries, Scotland, uh, Ross White, uh, Isabella Rana out of Sweden. There's a number of teams in Switzerland that are not that far out of junior. Yet when I look at Canada and I look at the teams that were in the Camrose on both the men's and women's side, I see Tyler Tardy on the men's side. And I see the Zacharias team with Jennifer Jones on the women's side as being the really only people who have been recent juniors. What do you think about all that? Do you think there's an issue in Canada with regard to what's happening and on the young teams coming up as to should Curling Canada be doing something different or what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I think that's always been a that's always been the question, right? You know, we have so much depth in Canada. How do you allow people to have long successful careers, um, which has kind of been the Canadian curling model while still bridging that gap for all the young players coming up? And I don't know if we've really found the answer to that. I, I mean, you look to a lot of those other countries that absolutely have less depth across the country than Canada, but they find a way to get uh, elite athletes younger and faster, and in some cases better, <laughs> than we can do in Canada. So I think we have a we have a moment of reflection here where we got to look in the mirror, and I don't really think it's a question anymore of is Canada still ahead or are they catching up? I think in a lot of cases, we need to be looking at how we can catch back up to some of those international teams. Yeah, probably again, as we've talked about many times, the need for a big room discussion on all this as to what we're doing and how it might be made better going forward. On another topic, you're soon going to be going into the Briar Playdowns starting in about three weeks. And uh, Curling Canada has brought in an 18-team Briar again this year. And I'm looking at the rankings right now. So Right now, as we sit, Dunstone, Gushu, Kui, and Botcher are all going to be in the briar, regardless of what happens over the next couple of months because of, of your rankings. And the fact that Gushu is already in, Dunstone, if he doesn't win Manitoba, will be in. And the same with both uh, you and Kui in Alberta. And in all likelihood, uh, Crothers is number five. He's probably going to be in. And the way the whole thing is shaking down, I suppose if Dunstone wins Manitoba, that will put Crothers in, and if uh, either you or Kui win Alberta, that'll put probably Colton Flash in, and he'll probably win Saskatchewan, which means we're down now to Epping. <laughs> so it was a good chance, for yeah, for the first time, we're probably going to have the top seven ranks all in the briar. Anyway, so what do you think of what they've done here? Do you like this 18-team idea, or do you think it still needs to be tweaked in some way, shape, or form? Well, I think... Uh... I think there's a lot of competing interests relative to why we run our national championships the way we do. Um, and I actually think this format as it is today is probably a pretty good balance of all those interests. It finds a way to have the, the representation from across the country, which has kind of created the brand that is the Briar and that is the Scotties, while still allowing you know enough of the top teams in that you have the best of the best competing for the right to wear the maple leaf. Um, and I just don't know how you get around that unless you structurally change um, what the Briar and the Scotties have looked like for the last you know, century. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting situation going forward uh, as to how that whole thing shakes down because it's such a division now between, I mean, if these, these seven teams I just mentioned, if they're all in the Briar, and a couple of others could be there as well. So you could have this year as many as nine of the top-ranked teams in the event. Uh, it doesn't give much of a chance to probably those nine below because they're just not at the same level. And uh, it's a dilemma for sure, but uh, I'm sure it's going to have some more discussion. I want to just go quickly back to one other thing, and then Kevin can jump in again, talking about the deliveries. And you had a lefty in Thies, and you got a lefty in Kennedy, which, of course, the rock is coming at you a little differently. Do they vary uh, in, in as far as how you're dealing with the release from, from Thiessen to Kennedy, or is it both the same with the lefty? Well, you know, so it's obviously different um, in terms of back line to hog line, but you'd be surprised how, with enough work that those guys put in, how close they can get their rocks to run down the sheet 
as though they were right-handed curlers. <laughs> so I think it's a bit of a balance. You know, you, you can't strip away too much of their identity. You want them to still uh, still be able to play at a really high level. But it is important that their rocks can come down the sheet within the ballpark of what a right-handed curler's rocks would. You know, not only from a, a broom placement standpoint and a, a line calling perspective, but if your lefty's always taking a different arc to draw to the button, they're always on a fresh piece of ice. And, and that's hard um, in terms of weight judgment, in terms of broom placement, in terms of stopping a rock on a dime down at the other end. So as much as they can, we've got to always be playing on the same parts of the ice. Um, and, you know, the few lefties I've had the pleasure of playing with have sunk in a ton of energy into that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Brennan. Um, this really brings me on to one other uh, topic. I actually had a junior curler from Camrose come up to me and I actually had her uh, watch your team because you have righties and lefties, but, but the, your starting point for Mark and for yourself and, and everybody else, Ben and, and Brett, all, it seems to be the same, the starting point, all of you cheat to the inside with your foot position. So I, I told her to actually have a really good look at that. That way the crease in your arm, your armpit, basically left or right starts in the same spot. So your drag back of the curling stone is identical. Brett, I don't think used to do that. Um, so I'd like to get your, just a quick comment on that simply because it actually came up this weekend in Camrose where a young person was wondering about, cause I bring up a lot about the tangents that you and I talk about keeping your tangents the same on an outturn and intern. If you could just get into that a little bit, uh, with, with your foot position and how, cause I don't think Brett Gallant used to do that. So I, I absolutely think it's important and I'll start there. You know, if you start with the end goal of wanting your rocks to travel down the same arc down the sheet, one way to accomplish that would be starting from roughly the same spot. So if you're not starting from the same spot, then that line gets really tough because you're either coming sharper or more flat at the broom and that will affect the break point of your rock. It's almost impossible to cheat that. So you've got to start from roughly the same spot and you know how you make right-handed curlers and left-handed curlers more similar is to you know cheat back to the center line because that's kind of your point of reference across the sheet. So that's uh, that's important. Um, it was important on my last team. It's still important on this team. Um, and all of us have had to make a few a few minor changes. Uh, Brett, myself, um, even you know Mark and Ben, a renewed focus on that line of delivery. Where are we starting from? How do we want our rocks running down the sheet? Um, because when you look at the international teams, the Adines and the Moets, that's what they have in spades. You know, you could argue who's got more talent, but they just work hard and they throw the rock the same and out of the hand, they know where almost every rock's going to stop. And that leads to a pile of confidence and they, they go out there and shoot 90% and that wins them games. So how can we, you know, replicate that and kind of our Canadian approach, diving back into the technical side of the game. Uh, one more thing that I really want to uh, bring up with you is the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Rylan Hartley on with Nicodine um, to do with the new a players group, world, uh, kind of a worldwide players group. Have you had a chance to talk to Ryland? Like you and Ryland go back a ways. I don't know if everybody knows that, but you and Ryland do. And your thoughts on that new uh, players association, because I think it's, in my opinion, it's really important to have a voice at the various tables around the world. Oh, 100%. I've been a strong proponent of needing to have a players association for just so many reasons. Um, and whether that's, you know, the, the athlete council at you know, Curling Canada or the WCF's Athlete Commission or, you know, Ryland's and Nick's Players Association group or the Players Association that, uh, you know, Pete was a part of or all the way back to the, the Players Association that you were a part of, Kevin. I really think as athletes, we need that representation and we need that those seats at, you know, all those relevant tables uh, because of all the interests that get juggled in our sport. You know, often the athlete interest is is overlooked in a lot of cases so you know how can we do a little bit job of sticking up for ourselves we've got to come together um, and we've got to have good representation there uh brendan you're you're you know one of the best curlers in the world uh you're 30 i get 31 yeah you're probably thinking you must be around that age jim you clipped me by 30 uh years you've been curling your whole life have you had to change your game, uh, Brendan, from the way you curl? Have you had to change that over the years? And, and going forward, do you think you'll have to adjust your game? 
we, we get a lot of talk. Kevin and Warren always, you know, talk about so many things are important, how great players are. Kevin played at a high level. So I'm, I'm just wondering if that's what you've had to do over the years. Have you, have you had to change the way you curl? Absolutely. For, for so many reasons, for strategy reasons, for uh, the strength, the strengths and weaknesses of the guys you're curling with at the moment for, you know, what's the competition around you doing? Frankly, what are the rules of curling today? Because it feels like every year those change a little bit too. So, you know, absolutely, we're constantly tweaking what it is we're doing out there. And that's important. Uh, every year, the, the quality gets a little bit better. The, the best teams are getting a percent or two better every year. So you, you've got to be constantly hunting for that little bit of an edge somewhere. Good for you. Well, keep tweaking. Whatever you did, okay, you little you little tweaker, keep doing it. <laughs> there wouldn't be a lot of instances where that'd be a compliment. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> Jim's good That's at that. Right, <laughs> I'm really good. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, listen, Brendan, congratulations. You know, to you and the team. Uh, they, you guys are going to be the ones to watch for sure, for sure going forward. And uh, I was down in Camrose. I got to, I got to see you guys and. Uh, uh, you look good. You look really good. And uh, we're going to be excited to watch you guys uh, from here on in. Well, did you guys celebrate yesterday? And can- Did you take down cameras? Did you paint the town red or what? No, you, you know, to be honest, we, we enjoyed for a little bit. You know, we, we did what we needed to do. And then we all got on the road here pretty quick. We are back, back to business. This is just one step along the journey. Well, if you may be an excellent skip, if you can corral Ben Hebert from saying, I want to hang around and have a party. If you got him on the road, you're good. You're good. He's aging. <laughs> yeah, he's aging. Thanks a lot, Brendan. Congratulations, man. And well, uh, good luck the rest of the season. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Brendan. Good luck thanks in the provincials. God, he's smart, eh? <laughs> he sounds like he could design a rocket like and, and be a rocket scientist. Uh, but congratulations to him. Kev, I'd asked him, uh, you know, has, has your game had to change over the years? You know, have you had to change the way you curl from the time you started to where you are now? How about you and all those years you curled? What? Yeah, you know what? I think Brendan made a great point that you have to keep changing. And, and Brendan... As a kid, so I remember being at the Salvo and watching this this young person. Now he's 31, but I remember watching him when he was 13, 14, 15 years old practicing. The kid, the kid didn't hit real well, but Brendan could draw. Most kids can't draw. Most kids can hit. Mm-hmm. But this kid, he just had a, just a freaky ability to, to draw the forefoot. Mm-hmm. And and so you, you see that on the next, you go, mm. You better watch this guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and here we are, you know, winning grand slams and winning Canadian championships and all of that. So it's funny, you know, like um, you see that. And then I know Brendan worked real hard on his hit game to get more power and throw the rock straighter mm-hmm. um, and online, which of course, you know, Brendan talked about with us today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but for myself, I, I continually change. I was a terrible drawer as a kid, mm-hmm. uh, but I could always hit. But then you don't win championships without being able to draw. Right. So I just threw thousands and thousands and thousands of draws and I got very good at it. Mm-hmm. And now Brendan is one of the best hitters in the game. And he wasn't that. It wasn't natural for Brendan to be a good hitter. He just worked his butt off and became a good hitter. Right. Would you would you be able to win today, Kevin? With with these guys I mean I mean everyone talks about younger kids and you know they're they're stronger and fitter and all that stuff. How would you do in today's game? At at uh, my age right now? No. <laughs> not worn no i don't think we do very well right now but no no i i, I think we do fine i don't think it matters you know it's funny when uh, in hockey or curling or any sport well the, the, it's way more difficult to win now than before mm-hmm. well no if, if you got wayne gretzky born right. today when he gets into the nhl 20 years from now he's no. still gonna be the best guy because he's just the best right and so i think and it doesn't matter when you play it as play a sport uh, in what era, the best are just the best. Right. That's a nice humble way, right, of saying I would be kicking everyone's ass again. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. No, I know you didn't. <laughs> I know you didn't. No, that's uh, awesome. Uh, there it is. Great show. Like I said, there was a, there's a lot in there this week. Uh, fantastic. Congratulations to Brendan Botcher. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we do it each and every week, of course, while the curling season's on, uh, and often 
uh, a couple of shows a week to give you updates. Kev, uh, way to go this week. You sounded great. I was impressed. I stood behind you in the booth, and uh, there's way more that goes on in a television broadcast than just uh, if you ever do, if you ever get a chance, you go to one of the Grand Slams. The access to where you guys are in the booth is quite easy. You're not you're not all shut in. And go check it out and watch the the flurry of stuff that has to go on. It was great. Thanks a lot to Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies, for all the great work he does on our Facebook group. Also, uh, if you want to join it, uh, check it out. Warren weighs in on a lot of stuff, and we'd love to have your opinions on things. Email us, and we might end up reading your email, insidecurling at gmail.com. And thanks again to Sports Interaction, Coyote, Boost, and Goldline, who make all of this possible. Kevin has just spent more than an hour and a half here at the, the Jerome Haciendi. Uh, before you go, Kev, I brought out a broom and a mop, okay? And uh, my laundry is in a basket <laughs> right at the... <laughs> Get to work. Take it easy, boys. You take it easy, Warren. We'll see you later. Hey, thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks, Jim. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now.